Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. Uh, the Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go to Dicetower.com and see what Tom and the crew have to offer. Uh, there's always great resources, reviews, and top ten lists, and uh, all sorts of uh, podcasts for every taste. So go to Dicetower.com and see what they have set aside for you. The Long View is also generously sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Gamesurplus.com is a fantastic destination for online board gaming purchases. Their reputation is sterling. Their customer service is fantastic. And uh, with the new transition in place for Game Surplus, I can tell you I've already gotten a package delivered um, from uh, the Smucker family now that they've taken over. And it was just as fast and uh, just as meticulously packed. And everything seems like it is exactly the same. So... Uh, they are continuing the great tradition started by Thor and his family, and I'm very happy to have them uh, as a sponsor and uh, happy to continue to recommend them to everyone who is out there listening. I also want to give a special shout-out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. If you are in the Northeast Pennsylvania region or uh, northern New Jersey or southern New York, you might want to stop by. Uh, they are one of the largest uh, game stores in the area. They're the largest in Northeastern PA, for sure. And uh, they have a huge collection of board games, over 600 titles now, and are continuing to grow month by month. They have a lot of open gaming space that is always available, well-lit, clean, and a knowledgeable and friendly staff. If you're into CCGs and video games, they've got that covered, too. So stop by on Main Street in Stroudsburg, conveniently off of Route Interstate 80, and check out all that they have to offer. That's the Gamer's Edge. Thanks to them for their support as well. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View. And today I am very happy to be joined by Jason Obermeyer uh, from sunny California. Um, Jason wrote in a little while ago and said, hey, would you like to maybe do an episode about uh, Kingsburg or Eclipse or a game like that? And uh, I emailed him back and said, sure, I'd love to. Always happy to uh, meet a new person, hear a new voice, and hear some new perspectives. So, Jason, I want to say uh, thank you for reaching out and uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Not a problem. It's always a pleasure. And uh, I, I understand that uh, you've been uh, bitten by the gaming bug for about the past six, seven years, yes? Yeah, it all started with uh, Settlers of Catan. Settlers of Catan, yes. <laughs> that is one that I have to do an episode about soon. I know that I've got one uh, in the works there with uh, Eric and Joe that I'm hoping to get recorded soon. So that was your first game uh, that you played? Uh, yeah, since I've been uh, you know, out of college and stuff, that was definitely the first one. Fantastic. And what was it about that that kind of hooked you? What what got you sort of, uh, you know, because you said you've been gaming now when I was talking with you before we recorded for about six, seven years, and you had some friends who brought some games back uh, from PAX. And what was it about uh, Settlers that kind of grabbed you or, or that made you really want to dive into the hobby? Oh, it's definitely the, the people at the table, the interactions. Uh, we were playing a lot of video games online before that, and uh, definitely just being in the same room at the same table was uh, it's definitely more fun to me, so that was probably the reason why. Yeah, that's an excellent point, and one that uh, people don't always make, which is you know, the social aspect of it is something that is often truly special. The people that you play with, the right. people that you meet, um, you know, that's just something that can uh, really help, uh, really make it something special to you. So I'm glad that you uh, had that experience. 
person. Uh, I'm glad that I'm not the only person out there that prefers to, uh, you know, be playing a game with someone at the same table instead of uh, over the internet. Uh, although it's ironic that everybody I talk to is over the <laughs> internet. Um, so yeah, that's that's fantastic. So you started off with Settlers, and then uh, where did you go from there? Uh, next was probably Dominion. Uh, that was brought back from PAX, and uh, we were playing a lot of that. You know, that's a, a fantastic game as well. And my friend uh, Jim that I just did an episode with about Dominion said that he really felt Dominion was, was actually a pretty good gateway game. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, totally. Especially the first set. I think after that it can get a little complicated, but definitely the first set. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The complexity does ratchet up as you go along. And uh, I think that's not a bad thing, but uh, I think... No, no, I agree. Yeah, yeah you know, certainly that, that base set. So um, so you were a video gamer uh, primarily before board games. You weren't into, you know, so many people who, ca- who got into board games that I've talked with were either old-time board gamers like myself or they were CCG players. Were you active in that scene as well, the CCG uh, kind of field, or were you primarily a video gamer? Uh, pretty much a video gamer. I played a little bit of Magic when I was in when I was younger in middle school, but uh, most for the most part just computer games and Xbox games and so forth like that. Right, right, fantastic. So, what are your favorite video game titles for people out there who might be listening? <laughs> uh, I'm kind of old school. I prefer some of the stuff from the early 2000s, uh, something like Knights of the Old Republic and uh, video games like that. Not so much. I don't I don't play many games anymore. I just don't have time, but. Uh, more so from the from the earlier days. All right, all right. Well, uh, you know, I also want to give a little plug there for uh, Video Game Geek. Uh, you know, that's a whole nother side of Board Game Geek that is out there. Uh, I've poked around in there from time to time, and that's a kind of a growing and vibrant resource for people who are into video games as well. So I think, uh, you know, everybody would be, uh, you know, well served to go check out both Video Game Geek and RPG Geek, which is uh, up there as well. So, well, thanks for sharing a little bit of background about yourself. Um, you know, since this is the first time I've had a chance to talk to you, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so, so tonight, when we were preparing for the episode, uh, I said I wanted to kind of get back to um, that segment of what's your favorite game outside the top 500 that is at least five years old. And this was something that was actually suggested uh, when I did the state of the podcast for the second time for just this past year. And I thought it was a fantastic suggestion. So you said you have a game picked for us, yes? I do. So, uh, which game have you selected to talk about tonight? Uh, so, <clears throat> the game is Aliens, the board game from uh, 1989. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to play this, but I actually had been wanting to play it for many years. I finally had the chance at Gen Con last year. And it's kind of cheating because um, I think part of the experience I had was based on... I, I got to play on... At, at Gen Con, some of the guys bring these, uh, these ones they've personally built, these 3D models with uh, minis and... You know, they're plugged into electronics. They have fans that spin, lights that flicker. Um, and <laughs> it, it's ridiculous. It was so much fun. It was one of the best experiences I've ever had playing a game in my life. Uh, but it, the, the, the team, that is, it, from, for how old it is, the, uh, the co-op, it's a co-op game. And it just, I, I couldn't believe how it was. So, it was so ahead of its time. I, I think it's still held up today for the most part. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was an amazing experience. And uh, that, that's, gonna, that's the game I picked. It was actually pretty tough. I went back and I try to find games that I consider great games or really, really good games. And this was probably the only one I could find that was outside the top 500. So I don't know what that means for me personally, but uh, <laughs> uh, that, that was it for sure. That was the only, uh, the only one I could find. So this is a game that was designed by uh, David McKenzie and Barry Nak- Nakazono. 
Right. Uh, I'm sure I'm butchering that. I hope not. But uh, <laughs> uh, done by Leading Edge Games, and as you said, in 1989. And uh, that, you know, that is going back quite a ways. And yeah. you said this was a co-op game. Um, yep. And looking at the screenshots here on, on BGG, it almost reminds me a little bit of like an early Gears of War type e game. Exactly. That is exactly what it's like. That's probably the closest thing we have today that is the ex it's same experience-wise. So what did you find interesting about the like, like how did the game play mechanically? Like I'm I'm very curious since you say it's it's like a, an early cooperative game. Um, can you kind of tell us a little bit about the mechanics of the game and how it's played? Yeah, uh, basically uh, you're gonna you get a set. Each guy has a different number of actions he can take. Um, uh, they're also the the main the main part of the game is. Uh, the, the the acid damage from the aliens, so you you, you kind of got you got to get rid of the aliens before they get too close to you, because if they get too close, to you, you have a chance of I guess the acid spray onto you. Right. Um, so, but there's obviously there's too many aliens that you so you have to keep you have to keep making decisions on which ones to take out. You're you're going to lose some guys on the way, and it's that's it's a back and forth on that. Uh, basically, they're they they randomly drop in uh, at these various locations of the board. It's it's all through die rolls, and you just have to tactically figure out what's the, how I'm going to get from one end of the room to the other room end of the room without losing everyone. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, it was an experience. I, 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 I'd love to play it again, but unfortunately it's one of those games that's hard to get hold of, but, uh, right. it, it, it was so much fun. So did it have player elimination when you said you're going to lose some guys? I mean, was there the possibility that players would be knocked out? Well, so there's there's nine characters you play with in the game. Uh, you could play nine players, but I don't think you ever would. Uh, so usually you play about four people, and you're basically controlling two or three guys. So I, I, I mean, even if you're eliminated from the game, you're still so immense with the experience. I don't think it matters. But for the, you're probably, you're, you're probably going to make it to the end. If not, you'd be 15 minutes away from the game ending anyway. All right, all right. Yeah, you know, uh, there, it's interesting that you're talking about this game because, um, you know, Upper Deck, of course, has announced right. that they are putting out a version of Legendary, but it's going to be Legendary Aliens instead of, you know, the, the Marvel Universe. So, um, you know, it's interesting that, that that theme is coming back again, yes? I know, yeah, that's cool. Uh, you know, there's a, another game that was just released, too, that I, I think I did a, a, a brief review uh, about a few episodes back, Theseus, uh, The Dark Orbit, uh, by Portal Games. And that has a very distinctive alien kind of feel to it as well. Um, you know, it's that kind of notion of being trapped, and, you know, there's aliens and the space marines and the scientists, and you're trying to kind of survive. So uh, this is a theme that seems to come back, uh, you know, quite a bit. And, you know, I think there's, there's good reason for that. I mean, it's a classic film. Right. And, you know, it, it really creates that sort of dark atmosphere and tension. Although every time I think the word alien now, I always think of Family Guy. <laughs> a little, you get back in there, little mouth. I'll let you know he's going to eat him. Um, which is truly classic. If you've never seen the Family uh, Family Guy version of Alien, you kind of have to you Google that to find that on YouTube because it's truly hysterical. But anyway... Um, I kind of got off topic there. So it's a co-op game, and it has that kind of you know tactical movement, uh, minis, uh, combat, dice rolls. Yes. Yeah, just simple dice rolls. Okay. All right. And how did you feel about the game? You know, a lot of games when I look back at them, older games, I kind of will be able to find that they're not as well balanced as games are now. I, I find that modern games are meticulously balanced for the most part. 
and sometimes I even think they might be a little too balanced. Um, and but some of the old school games can be maybe a little out of balance. How did you feel about the balance between you know you guys as the players and the AI of the game with the aliens? Did it seem to be in line, or was it too easy or too hard? Well, I personally prefer um, harder co-op co-op games, something like Robinson Crusoe. So it was kind of <laughs> that level. It was very difficult. Uh, right. We got we were warned going in. Most likely, we wouldn't make it out. Um, we almost, we actually almost survived. We were probably a turn away from winning, but uh, we ended up dying. But uh, I, I was actually shocked because of how. I mean, I thought for a co-op game that was that old, that was so far, bef- you know, be so ahead of its time. I mean, co-op games really didn't take off till mid two thousands. It seems like so. I mean, this is fifteen, sixteen years before that. So I was impressed by just how 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 tough it was. It, it wasn't it wasn't the tough where you're like so tough that you felt like you had no chance. It was tough enough that you felt. Right. You were engaged the entire time. You're you know you're feeling the stress, but you were, you also have felt like you could succeed. So I thought it was actually perfectly balanced, for at least for my taste. But uh, it was definitely a tougher game. You know, it's funny that you mentioned a game like Robinson Crusoe because that's one of my current favorite co-ops, and it is often quite brutal. Um, you know, geez, I don't know how many times it took me just to get the stupid bonfire lit <laughs> in the first, uh, just the first mission, trying to survive that. Of uh, you know, let alone what was it? The cannibals right. one, I think, was particularly brutal. Have you tried the King um, Kong one? So yeah, but oh, now I haven't I think tried that, that one the yet. Toughest one um, I've ever played. <laughs> uh, I would believe it. I would believe it. It's it's an interesting thing because I I think that you're you're really on to something when you talk about the difficulty level of a co-op because a lot of games now, the the fad seems to be everybody scores points, everybody's a winner. You know, I, I played Russian Railroads for the first time the other day, and I really enjoyed that game. I thought it was fun, um, a little mechanical, like the theme was a little absent for me, but I still really enjoyed it. Um, but I think my score was like 320 points or, <laughs> or, or something ridiculous. And, and the next person had like 298. And, you know, there's all these games now where it's like you, you are constantly, it's almost like a Pavlov's dog thing. You're constantly being reinforced with, look, you scored points. Look, you scored points. Look, you scored points. But these co-op games uh, that have been coming out recently, especially games like Robinson Crusoe, you know, you really get slapped around quite a bit. But then when you finally win, you really do actually have this sort of feeling of accomplishment of I actually did something. And you're telling me that you feel aliens kind of gave you that same feel. Yes. It's it's we played with that. We ended up playing with six people, actually. So, I mean, we're all at the table. You know, I I didn't know. I some of my friends I was playing with, but there was about three other people that I had no clue they were. But at the end of the we were all friends at the end of the at the end of the, you know, the match because of just how close and how tight how tight of a game it was, so it's a it's a great game. I, I wish it would I wish it would, could be reprinted. I don't know if it ever will, but it was a ton of fun. Well, that sounds awfully neat. I'm a little uh, uh, sad though because I'm listening to you tell me about it, and it's like, oh wow, this game sounds like fun. But I went to the Board Game Geek page, and apparently, you can only find it in Europe. And there, you're going to pay about two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollars no, in order to get I the game. That so I, I, I didn't want to play it for a while, and I ha- they have a ton <laughs> of Gen Con events for it, or some, and I'm sure there are conventions too. So if you ever get a chance, you might want to try signing up for one. Again, if you play on the the actual like 3D boards and stuff, it's just it's a, it's unreal. It's so cool. So I'd recommend it. 
Well, that sounds great. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your favorite game uh, outside of the top 500. It sounds like an intriguing early co-op that seems like they really got the mix right and sounds like a really engaging experience because you're still talking about it even though you played it a while ago and you know you keep describing this wonderful experience that you had and often when you have a really great experience playing a game it really sticks with you for a long time agreed So the game we're going to be talking about tonight is a really fascinating title. It's been around since 2011, and this is the space game called Eclipse. Um, this is a game that is designed by, I'm sure I'm going to butcher this, so my apologies. Um, as I'm going to try it as Toku, uh, Taco, oh goodness, um, Taco Kilo? Taco Kilo? I don't know. Okay, so... Uh, we know that I can't pronounce uh, Finnish names. I apologize for that. I believe this is a Finnish uh, designer who came out with this game. And Eclipse is kind of a classic 4X space game that was billed when it first came out as the Twilight Imperium 3 in a reasonable time frame for Eurogamers. And so uh, there was a lot of buzz about this game when it first came out. And it was nominated for all kinds of awards right off the bat. It was incredibly difficult to find uh, at first and get yourself a copy of, uh, which, of course, always increases the buzz. Um, I managed to get myself a copy a couple of years ago. And uh, I'm going to hold off on, on my impressions about the game because what I'd like to do, Jason, is, is ask you about when you kind of first became aware of the game, what attracted you to it, and uh, you know, what your kind of first experience with Eclipse was. Well, uh, I, I had played uh, Twilight Imperium 3 probably uh, maybe a month or two before I'd heard of Eclipse. <clears throat> and, you know, I had the kind of the same feeling everyone else has, I think, that as in, into like six to eight hour games is the game was awesome. It was very epic, but it was way too long. <laughs> I mean, we're talking lunch and dinner long, right? Same game. So, right. Um, Basically, I, I saw, I think Drakenstrike posted a, a video on it, and uh, I was just, I, 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 you could, just from the review, you could kind of tell he what, what was abstracted out and, you know, uh, what they tried to simplify, what they tried to make, you know, bring in some Euro mechanisms to kind of fix some of the problems. And uh, so I, I basically brought, I pre-ordered it, I read the rules, and as soon as we got it, um, we, we played a six-player game of it, and... You know, four hours later, only four hours, we were uh, we were complete. <laughs> we were complete, and uh, that's pretty good for a six-player game. Yeah, I, I just remember thinking, "Wow, we just finished a six-player game of this in half the time," and I, I feel the same amount of epicness that I felt from playing Twilight Imperium Three. So, I mean, I was sold at that point. Well, thanks for sharing those initial impressions. Um, I had very much sort of the same expectations you did. Um, I've only had the opportunity to play Twilight Imperium a couple of times, sadly. Um, I'm hoping to play it again this summer. I've got a, a small group of uh, about five people that want to play it. I, you know, there are a lot of people who say that's not the optimum number, but I don't care. We're going to play it anyway. Um, 
and and the main problem with Twilight Imperium uh, is that it's just as you said, it's epic, it's wonderful, but it's just too darn long. And it's it's you know as you said, a, a lunch and dinner game, and maybe some snacks and some pie. <laughs> I don't know. By the time you're done, man, they might turn into a sleepover. You know, I don't know. <laughs> People bring sleeping bags and maybe a tent. I don't know. So it, it's a fantastic game. But it's just so epically involved. And there's a lot of rules overhead in Twilight Imperium 3. Right. And the rules overhead is fantastic. It's very thematic. And it makes a lot of sense for the most part. And I don't have a problem with it. But it, it, it really is kind of a beast. And so, you know, every... Any time before I've played Twilight Imperium, it's like I feel like I have to study for a week, you know, just to kind of get everything fresh in my mind and, and try to recall all of the sort of subtleties and nuances. Whereas Eclipse seemed to offer a much more sort of a streamlined experience where you still had the exploration. Um, you know, you still had the, the technology that you were trying to sort of ramp up and advance. You still had competition. Uh, you still had uh, planets and resources and all this wonderful kind of stuff that you had to manage. Um, and then you also had this nice little added element that they threw in, which was this sort of neutral, sort of ancient aliens kind of race, which I thought was kind of uh, a nice way to give the players something to beat up on <laughs> early in the game, uh, you know, to kind of help them along their way as they as they teched up and, and were able to uh, conquer, you know, different systems and whatnot before you went for each other, you know. Right. Twilight Imperium is, is a lot of that direct conflict. Um, sometimes right out the gate, um, you know, depending on how fast people uh, spread around the board and, and come into contact with each other. Eclipse seemed like a little bit gentler. It was it it had that sort of neutral sort of player in the ancient aliens that kind of gave everybody a little time to get their feet under them before they started really bumping heads uh, with each other. So. Um, that was something that I really enjoyed. The, the simplified rules, the ancient aliens, even though there were these you know, little cardboard things that you plop down, they weren't very inspiring to look at. Um, I really liked them as a gameplay mechanic. And uh, I haven't played with the expansion, but I understand that one of the expansions really bumps up the, the ancient aliens and makes them much more formidable um, and, and a little bit more interesting. So, you know, you got tech advancement, you got exploration, resource management, you got a streamlined rule set uh, that plays up to six players. And so I thought, okay, this, this is going to be a great game. And so I played it, but my first play was with four. Okay. And I thought it played wonderfully. Um, I, I, you know, really, we enjoyed it. It took us probably about three hours. Uh, we were a little slow trying to kind of make sure we were doing everything right. Um, but it kind of delivered on everything that we thought it was going to do. Um, you know, we we disregarded the original instructions about, you know, only play with the human factions. Like, we, we played around. We're, we're gamers enough that we felt confident to go for that little bit of differentiation between the different races. And so we tried that right out the gate and found that interesting and sometimes challenging. And, you know, the game really was a lot of fun to play. And, uh, you know, we certainly enjoyed it. Um, I then played it with my wife as a two-player game a couple times. And we even enjoyed that. I, I didn't even really have a, a problem with it as a two-player game. I thought it was 
pretty darn good. Uh, you know, we enjoyed ourselves quite a bit playing it that way. So your first game was a six-player game. Yep. Have you played it with other player counts, Jason? And what did you think of it? Do you agree with me or disagree? No, I agree with you. I think four is best. I played it six a few times. Um, I have played it three-player. Uh, that was I, I, I find that the odd player counts aren't as much fun, but... Uh, I haven't played five, actually, but three was not. I didn't think three is very good. I've never played a two-player, but mostly four and six players. Okay. All right. So you feel that there's that sort of odd player. Is it like a king-making thing that you think happens with the odd players? What's your issue with the odd player count? Yeah, I, I, that was the problem I had with the base game was if the odd player count is unless everybody kind of goes for in one direction, like I'll go right, everyone goes right, or kind of thing like that. I felt, you know, you, mm-hmm. you do you end up king-making somebody to victory. But uh, the expansion with the, the, the improved ancients and stuff like that did fix that a little bit for us. But uh, – that's that's that 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 was I think the fix they put in for the the odd player accounts, but uh, that that's been my experience at least. Okay, um, what would be your response? You know, because both you and I talked about how we came to this game through Twilight Imperium three. Uh, you know, this this notion of wanting to find a playable version of Twilight Imperium uh, with these kind of smoothed out mechanics and a shorter play uh, shorter play time. Um, what would you say to the criticism that people kind of leveled at it that it really was much more of a resource management kind of spreadsheet management game than a epic space game? Do you feel that that criticism is well-founded or do you think it's a, a misplaced notion? <laughs> you know, it's it's funny how many people actually describe the game in something, something that you just said, which is basically a, a Euro game with a pace it on space theme. And... You know, maybe I'm blinded by something that I'm not seeing, but uh, I never felt that way. I I, I I get that same epic feel from it that I get from Twilight Imperium 3. Um, I, I always laugh when people say it's a Euro game because actually it's, it's it has some Euro mechanisms, but at the end of the day it has so much push-your-luck elements and um, there's there's just so many little things in it that feel more of a Meritrash to me than actually a Euro game that I just I can't even... I can't even put it in the same category as a Feld game or anything like that, just because of those reasons. So, I, I, I don't. I don't think it's a spreadsheet game. I don't. I, I think that the more, I think the player who, uh, the, oh, I don't, the one thing I do agree with is that uh, the player who always plays best might not always win, just because of exploration might go someone else's way with you know luck of the draw or something like right. that. But um, I've never felt like it was a spreadsheet game. I've. I mean, there's so many races to play and the, the, the variety there. And I, I've just never, I mean, maybe I don't play it with uh, people that are more into that kind of, you know, thinking, uh, but it's never felt that way to me. Yeah, you know, it hasn't uh, particularly felt that way to me either, but that may be because I'm kind of looking at games like that where management of resources and things of that nature would be part of my duties as the overlord emperor. Like, I, 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 I could see myself, you know, trying to make sure that I have, you know, enough of, of this resource to do what I want to do and what are my scientists researching now and, you know, what do you people need, you know, in order to make this happen for me. And so I kind of look at resource management as a uh, integrated kind of thematic piece right. 
to the idea of having a sort of empire game because you know in eclipse it's it's like your space empire you know you are you are spreading your culture out uh you know in direct competition uh with the others and so you know i, I to me it felt thematic but i've read a lot of posts where people had kind of criticized it and said that they thought it was too eurofied but right. you really feel that it's got enough of that thematic um you know uh, um sort of it's got enough luck in it and enough theme in it that you don't feel that it's a totally Eurofied experience. Am I understanding you correctly? Correct. I, I actually the one the thing I like about it the best, I think, is I to me it's right in the middle of a Euro and a Meritrash game. And those kind of games are rare when they happen, they're special, and this is one of those games to me at least. So that's an interesting kind of idea is is the hybrid game. And I think there's a lot of designers who have been working with hybrid games for quite some time uh, over the past few years. I think about games like uh, I just did a review of a Stronghold, uh, stronghold title um, called Rogue Agent. And Rogue Agent is, is kind of like this. It's supposed to be almost like Blade Runner, the board game. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed the game and I still do. But it is, it's got this thematic elements to it um, in the topic and in some of the mechanics, the artwork. Um, but it also is definitely a Euro game. You know, it has a lot of Euro kind of ideas behind it. Um, you know, only a certain amount of actions that you can perform each turn and things like that. Uh, but then there's the dice chucking in it. So it's kind of a, I, I really kind of feel that that's one of those hybrid games you're talking about um so what is it that makes those hybrid games intriguing to you uh the the perfect balance of clever mechanisms of with theme right so i mean for example a stefan phil game some of the most clever mechanisms ever and most most of the time you play as new games right but at the same time you don't feel like you're actually immersed with the theme and then you can play a game like, like you said, Gears of War earlier. Like, you can play that. The mechanisms are okay, but the theme really comes through. And you kind of see usually most games come through at one end or the other. And I feel like there's, not a, there's mm -hmm. not a whole lot of them that really, you know, can do both perfectly. And I feel like Eclipse is one of the ones I've, I've, I've played that kind of does that. I think it's very clear that there's been a lot of games that are sort of attempting to bridge that gap and try to have like one foot in each world. So giving a streamlined Euro kind of rule set and mechanics, but with uh, a lot of theme. And, you know, I, I, it's been interesting watching uh, things like dice coming back into vogue. Uh, you know, for a while there, you know, if a game had dice in it, you know, a Euro gamer would be like, nah, I don't, you know, that uh, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And now there's been so many different clever kind of implementations of the use of dice that they're kind of coming back. And one of the things I think about, you know, what you're calling Ameritrash games or thematic games is that there's usually a, a decent element of luck. And not that the luck is completely random, and I know that sounds like a stupid statement, but <laughs> a lot of the games that use dice now, uh, you know, there's, there's these modifiers and ways to kind of manipulate the dice. I mean, you think about a game like Alien Frontiers. I mean, geez, you know, so much of Alien Frontiers is about how can I manipulate the die rolls with the different cards that I've accumulated and whatnot. So uh, I think it's definitely a trend that's going to continue because... You know, you're, you're attracting both audiences instead of, you know, just sort of one group of people who have a preference for one type of game. Um, you know, another example I can think of would be like Euphoria. 
Um, this is another game that has a lot of Euro kind of mechanics and ideas, but it's got some really interesting kind of thematic uh, tie-ins to this sort of vision of this dystopian future. Um, you know, for example, the, the building names are hysterical. Um, the way the dice work as your workers and uh, you're just this whole notion of, you know, when you activate a worker, when you, when you wake a worker up from the sort of underground chamber where they're kept, you can hose them down <laughs> to wake them up, which makes them happy, or you can shock them, which will also wake them up, but they're going to be stupid. So <laughs> it's kind of like the, the, you know, the electricity did some damage to them. So it, it's a really kind of an interesting blend nowadays between these notions of mechanics and themes. So uh, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts about that. Now, one of the other big issues that I want to talk about with Eclipse is my only real beef with the game. And I want to see, since you're a person who's played Twilight Imperium, I, I, I want to see what you have to say about this. To me, one of the best aspects of Twilight Imperium ever is the political phase. The whole notion of that politics deck and what kind of laws or what kind of tariffs or whatever are going to be passed and everybody at the table having to vote and then having to abide by, you know, whatever it was that the group kind of decided. And this sort of wheeling and dealing that went on with that whole political phase, which I found fascinating and which is entirely absent in Eclipse other than this weird little, like, well, we'll have a treaty together, you know? And it's like, well, that's kind of sad, man, because... You know, Twilight Imperium had this wonderful, fleshed-out political kind of sphere that I really felt was one of the most attractive parts of that design for me. And I was really hoping with each of the expansions that came out, it's like, maybe they're going to do it. Maybe they're going to, are they going to add the political <laughs> deck? Are they going to do it? And they, they haven't really done anything with that. So that's kind of my problem. That's my beef with the game. What do you think about all that? Was that an acceptable sacrifice, or is that something that you miss, or what do you think? Uh... You know, I, I I do like that aspect. Uh, I did I did enjoy that part of Twilight Imperium. It, it does take a while. I think that's probably why they stripped it out. Um, you know, Exodus, the game that came after Eclipse, kind of put that back in, but then obviously lost some of the more ship fleet stuff. But I think it's a you know, if you're going to build a game that only takes three to four hours to play max, uh, you have to cut start somewhere. And some of the negotiation kind of stuff can be time consuming, especially when you have to make sure everybody understands what they're voting on, and then the, the negotiation aspect of it. And I mean, it, when we when we've played it, it's taken a while to get some of that stuff uh, you know voted on. So um, that's, at least that's my opinion of why they they dropped it. I I do miss it somewhat, but I don't think it affects the game enough to where I don't enjoy my my play experience of Eclipse. Okay, fair enough. Um, you know, that's something that uh, I totally understand what you're saying. It, it can add, depending on who you're playing with, it can add a significant amount of time to the game unless you sort of build in, uh, you know, into the rules the manner in which negotiations happen or perhaps, you know, the, the manner in which, you know, you're going to vote and whatnot. Um, you know, that can be streamlined a little bit. You know, I think about a game like Lancaster, which has the laws. Um, you know, those are things that can be streamlined and still be present. And I kind of always viewed that as a little bit of a missed opportunity. Um, I wanted to see like that sort of Lancaster system um, adopted and put into a game like Eclipse because it just adds another dimension. And that's the other thing that I wanted to ask you about since uh, we're talking about Eclipse is that 
this is a uh, you know 4x game definitely a strong theme one of the things that I kind of lament about the design however is that almost everything that I'm looking to do in this game okay all of the technologies that I'm going to develop my ship blueprints you know which I think are, are wonderful by the way I mean that that's just awesome I, I love that um, just gives you that chance to differentiate it's just a wonderful idea in the design but everything that I'm doing you pretty much exclusively comes down to beefing myself up to go and beat up on someone else and you know there are those um, uh, technologies that you can uh, use that will improve your mining capability and and things of that nature but for the most part it's all about military kind of technologies so that you can improve your ships so that they're bigger and badder and they're going to go and they're going to beat up the other guy. And there's been so many games where that sort of military path is kind of all that's being modeled. And that was one of the things that I loved about that political phase in Twilight Imperium was that was a little bit different. That, that was something that separated it. And I think about games, you know, other civilization games um, you know, like uh, uh, the Sid Meier Civilization and, and things of that nature. And they suffered from the same problem to me. You know, the notion of everything is kind of geared towards we're eventually going to have this big battle and we're going to find out who's going to win. Um, and the only design that I can think of that's really kind of taking care of that is Clash of Cultures. Uh, which is a Civ kind of a game, not a space game. And that's because they add this whole notion of cultural influence and trade and all of these different things, which are very fleshed out in that design, but not in Eclipse. And so, again, I wonder, missed opportunity? Uh, you know, it, it, you you could have, I would think, relatively easily put in some technologies and things that would allow you to, you know, garner more resources every turn through trade routes. You, know, you have two tokens. Here's one end of the trade route, here's the other. And as long as I keep those sectors under my control, I'm going to get an increased output of this or you know something of that nature. And they really kind of didn't do anything with that. Um, is that something that is just me as a player or are those things that you notice as well? Um, what would you say about that? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I do see the same thing that you see. Uh, it seems like most games end with just... You know that that last round, basically everyone's gonna, someone's gonna start a fight with someone else, and someone else is gonna backstab, <laughs> and then we'll see who has the most points at the end. Uh, right. I actually have won before without ever fighting, though. Um, it it was hard. It was I basically had to try really hard to do that. Um, it wasn't something that just happened, but um, you know they do have the monoliths, which give you victory points if you can control them at the end of the game. And there's some races in the expansion that you know you actually get bonus points for the having orbitals and monoliths at the end of the game. So. There are they try they did try to kind of incorporate it in the game, but uh, it seems like most games I've ever played though it's just that last round is some epic battles happen and whoever basically ends up controlling most of the board is going to win. So I do agree with you. I, I, I does it's a four X game, but at the end of the day, you're pretty much going to win by blowing someone else up. Right, right. Um, yeah, I'd be curious to hear. Can you tell us a little bit about the strategies that you used to win the game? where you were not actively, you know, seeking conflict or, or attacking or, you know, being attacked. Like, how did you do that? You said it was hard to pull off. What did you do? Uh, you can do, like, uh, ghost armies, which you just, you kind of basically keep a, 
you know, a lot of resources stacked up and then basically nobody's going to really mess with you. You just kind of have a, you kind of have your, yourself contained as much as possible and you control your borders and you just kind of build outwards rather than in. And, uh, you know, if nobody messes with you, then you just, you just hope that, uh, you can score enough points based on the orbital combination, the orbitals and the modelists and those, the, the, my race, the race I was playing was the one from the expansion where you get bonus points for that. And, uh, you know, treaties and stuff like that. And just to get, to get enough resources out on the board where I could, uh, you know, get enough technologies and so forth. Well, that's an excellent point too. I, I I forgot. You know, you do sometimes get all of those bonus points for those other things. So I'm glad to hear that that you had that experience. I mean, I haven't seen that, but I've only played Eclipse. I would say probably maybe eight, nine times, maybe. Yeah. Um, it's one of those that kind of teases me from my shelf. I see it, and I'm like, oh yeah, I should pull that out. We should play that. And and I, it just, <laughs> you know. It's just it hasn't hit the table recently. After recording this, I'm sure I'll probably pull it down again. Um, you've mentioned the expansion a couple of times. Um, there's been, I believe, two expansions to this game. One of them was uh, uh, the first one that kind of fleshed out the ancient aliens and offered some more options. And then you had the ship pack. But the ship pack, I believe, also includes some expansion material. So what can you tell us about your experience with the expansions? What do you feel they add to the game? And do you think they're a good addition or not? Uh at least in my opinion, I enjoy the expansions more so because of the additional races that it adds, so that it increases the variety of the game. Uh, my, my favorite part of the game is actually the asymmetrical, you know, starting power. So I, I, I never play with, and I mean, I, even when we first played, like like you, we we skipped the whole like let's all play as humans kind of thing. Um, so just having more variety there to basically pick a race. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned before the ancient homeworlds thing. I, we've tried it with odd-to-player accounts to see if it kind of helped, uh, which is basically you build some really powerful ancient homeworld in the map, and, um, you know, they, there's things you can do with it. They can actually – some of them can move and stuff like that. So uh, it, it kind of basically builds an AI player almost, not so, not so much build an AI. Random, it's kind of like a random thing that can kind of mess with you, uh, which kind of keeps it interesting and, and if odd-player accounts just so that those people that are next to it aren't – aren't just focusing on the player to the left versus there's nobody to the right. Um, the rare technologies were kind of interesting. Uh, I don't know if you've played with those, but uh, basically like in Eclipse, you basically keep drawing technologies until you hit, you, you, until you drew exactly the amount that it says on the, on the, on the player board, or sorry, the tech, the tech board. And uh, with the rare technologies, you'll draw rare technology out of the bag. It doesn't count towards that total. So it's like additional things that somebody can build, but they're one-off things. So it kind of um, it it kind of makes it more interesting that you you can't plan on something coming out like I mean with with the first with the base game of, I mean for the most part actually everything's going to come out so you can kind of keep playing the similar strategies you found have worked I feel like with the rare technologies it kind of surprises you and kind of challenges you to do something different than you've done in the past so I, I do join that aspect of it. Um, uh, the the ship pack one expansion uh it didn't really it kind of it, it kind of added a few things to these it also added an additional um additional race but it didn't add any new mechanisms really to the game okay so you mentioned the expansions offering more races and these sort of differentiated sort of starting positions and abilities. Um, one of the things that, you know, always comes to mind whenever people start talking about that is 
you know, it, it's kind of a, a game designer's nightmare, which is how do you balance all of those starting positions? Um, you know, how do you make sure that one is not more powerful than another? And I, I think that there's been some interesting ones. I'm trying to remember. I can't remember the one race, but... Um, you know, my wife played one race, which just gave a ridiculous amount of resources at the start of the game. Right. And so they were able, you know, she was able to just jump out all over us. It was one of our four player games and was just beating the snot out of everybody. But as the game wore on, uh, because of her board position and because of that race, it became more and more difficult for her to maintain and so she actually struggled in the second half of the game. So she was fast out of the gate, slow uh, coming through. I don't know if you remember the, the race I was uh, that I'm kind of referring to, but it's the Iradian Empire. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Great. Thank you. Um, so to try to balance all that, I imagine must be incredibly difficult and involve a lot of mathematics and a lot of play testing. Um, but designers are not always successful. So have you found any of the alien races or factions that you feel are particularly powerful or ineffectual? You know, the first time I played the game, I ended up with the, the they're called the Orion Hegemony, which is the, the, the race that the black ships that you start with the, uh, the buffed up the cruiser. Right. Um, you know, I had, I had, I basically, I remember just beating the snot out of the people next to me because I, early on I jumped on them. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this race is so overpowered. Um, you know, now I play the game, and I find that that race is significantly underpowered. Uh, I, I feel like I can't keep up with, the, you know, the resource game that everybody else is on. Um, you know, that, the, the race you mentioned with your, your wife playing, uh, I have had the same experience with that one. That's the one That's the one that I feel is underpowered. I've never been able to win with that one. Um, you know, and whoever gets that one usually picks the, the human side because they – uh, they just struggle with that one, uh, but from from everything else, from the expansions and the the base game, pretty much for the most part, I've I, I've seen that kind of you know a variety of people win with the different races. So I, I agree with you that at this point, I think there's 13 races, and in this game, each race is significantly different than the other ones. They play very differently, and it's shocking to me at how balanced they are and how much work must have been put into to play test this thing. Well, thanks for sharing your opinions on that. Um, I, I was kind of curious to see whether or not you, you found that there were any kind of holes or weaknesses or, or things that maybe, uh, you know, would need to be addressed. But it sounds like you feel that they're all pretty well balanced, which, you know, I have to say is pretty impressive given the fact that, you know, as we were just talking about, there are only so many kinds of different things you're going to be doing in the game. And so that sort of limits the options for differentiation. You know, you have your basic resource gathering, you have your technology, um, you know, upgrading, you have your ship design, you have your exploration. Um, and so uh, of those areas, you have to get different feeling uh, and different playing kind of races with their own different abilities. And um, I kind of thought that they were pretty well balanced from my experience, but I wanted to ask you since you had had uh, a whole lot more. So uh, it sounds like you rate that well, and you also rate the expansions uh, uh, highly, although you didn't sound too enthused with Ship Pack 1. What do you think about the ship designs uh, that were included there? You know, I'm not one of those people that complain. I actually find the original ships to be okay. Like, I don't have a problem playing with them. They're very clear on what, what they are. Um, they don't maybe look as epic as the Twilight Imperium ships, but I never had a problem with them. I picked that ship pack one because it has the additional race just to try and then obviously just to have some variety on the ships. But 
again, I'm not one of those people that was complaining about the, the ship models. So I, 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 I guess I, I really enjoy the Rise of Anxious expansion. The ship pack one, I don't think is as big of a deal as the, the other one, though. I think I agree with you uh, about that because I've always found the ships to be very functional. And they, as you said, they're clear. It's very clear what they're supposed to be. And so that's something that always appealed to me because when you're trying to scan a table with all of these pieces of plastic on it and all these different ships, it's nice that I'm not having to kind of try to remember, you know, well, what kind of ship is that again? And that one kind of looks like this one, but it's not. And I, I really like the fact that the ships were just very clear as far as, you know, what they were. Uh, mostly differentiated because of the size, but also the design. The design of that mid-level ship was, right. you know, very unique, and, and you know, you had the big, huge ones, and so it was really easy to kind of see on on the table. So I I, I agree with you on that. Okay, so um, Eclipse is a game that you really enjoy. Um, you've defended it well with the the normal complaints that I have thrown at you about the game. Uh, what, in your opinion, is kind of the one thing about this game that does bother you? The one thing that you wish could be better or improved or something that you don't particularly enjoy about Eclipse? Uh, so I don't know if you've ever played the game and uh, basically had the experience where, you know, every turn you, you try to explore early on in the game and you just come up with something that doesn't doesn't let you really have any flexibility uh, in terms of you know popul- putting out your population, expanding your population, or mm-hmm. you know uh, basically giving you something you can actually defeat uh, to you know basically increase your resources, uh, there there is that p- potential where you could uh, basically just get totally shafted on the draw from you know from the explore deck and you just have no chance. Uh, so for a, a game that takes you know two to three hours in a four player game, it's kind of frustrating when you uh, you know get that situation. I have, I actually have a friend who refuses to play the game anymore just because that happened to him. And he just feels like it's not worth the time because, you know, it basically, he says the, the game is basically comes down. Whoever has the best exploration, which is just a random, you know, tile draw. I don't agree with them, but I do, I do, I do, I do acknowledge that there is that aspect of the game where you could get hosed, um, without actually ever making a decision that was, you know, poorly, a poor decision, basically. Right. Yeah. And and I appreciate you bringing that up because that is something that is very, very uh, important in a game of this size. And I think, you know, I agree that that is the one hole in the game that I've found uh, as well, which is just, you know, just bad luck. And you don't mind like I don't mind bad luck in a game that lasts an hour. I don't really mind bad luck in a game, you know. That's 45 minutes, but in a game that's three or four hours, you know, that that really then can become an issue because you're talking about a significant investment of your time. And, you know, if you're playing and like you said, you get that feeling that through no fault of your own, you're host that really can be a difficult pill to swallow. So, um, you know, I don't know from a design standpoint exactly how, uh, you know, you would mitigate that. Um, I don't believe Eclipse has different stacks of tiles, um, do they? doesn't have like an A stack, B stack, C stack. Does it have it, a, it, a, it, a setup like that? It does, but for the one, two, three, so the outer, the middle, and the the inner rim, but that's... 
you're all at the beginning of the game. You're mostly drawing from the outer one. So uh, right. if if you just draw things that don't have any resources or they have you know ships on them that you can't defeat at the beginning of the game, you just have no way to expand as quickly as your your t- uh, the people across from the table from you. So you can get pretty you know in a bad situation where you just you just don't have a chance to you know keep up. But uh, it, I've I've seen it happen a couple times. Uh, but then in the day when I mostly play. It's, I, I can usually tell who's going to win just because of the choices they made. Uh, you know, right. there's some some of those times where you you have to take that you you put out that one extra token uh, just to get you know one more exploration in before the end of the round, and that could end up making or breaking your your strategy depending on what you get. Uh, I just let, and you know I just love those I love that I love that push your luck element of the explore deck, so I don't want them to totally destroy it and make it too you know too predictable, but. Right. Uh, you know, there is that aspect. There is a lot of there is a lot of luck on that explore, explore draw. But I've I've always found it fun, and I, even if I've gotten kind of hosed on the on the on the resource and allocation, I still try to you know have a good spirit about it. Try to try to do my best and see if I you know I can come out on top. But that I that, right. that, that's the one aspect. Yeah. Okay. Um. So you know, trying to to think of a way to you know kind of fix that. I, I you know I I'm kind of at a loss too. You know, I I was thinking about trying to have different stacks of tiles but they already do that and uh, as soon as you said that um i remembered that i was try- i was kind of confused like because i've got hegemonic in my mind i got eclipse <laughs> in my mind trying to remember which was which as far as how the tiles were arranged and set up um but uh, you know yes uh, especially i don't even think so much resource poverty is a major issue or problem i think it's those ancient aliens that are very strong. I think that's more of a problem than, you know, just having a, a poor system kind of flipped up. Um, you know, at least in my opinion, because, you know, those ancient aliens are going to kind of prevent you from really doing anything that you want to do. Whereas, you know, if, if you're able to kind of peacefully pass through this system, it, you know, it might only have one planet or, or what have you, and, and it doesn't really have a lot to offer, or maybe it has duplicate kind of resources from what it was that, you know, you... Uh, already had in other areas that you controlled so you know you just kind of move along um but those ancient aliens can really kind of hem you in and box you in um would you say that 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 sounds accurate or no uh yeah i, I agree with you uh there is i mean if you do get kind of hosed on the resource allocation there's things you can do with the with the whole orbital and the uh the model of thing um but yeah i i do agree with you okay um, I just wanted to make sure that I was remembering that correctly because it has been a little bit of, of time for me since I played it, and uh, <laughs> uh, this is much fresher in your mind. So thanks for clarifying that for me. All right, so um, Eclipse is you know a, a fascinating game, plays well I think at almost all the player counts. It has a, a wonderful you know the ship diagrams. I can't really say enough about those. You know the the we haven't talked too much about those yet, but. That notion of being able to sort of individually kind of modify the different ships that you have is one of the most enjoyable parts of the game. Now, I know I'm the same guy that just said, what, 20 minutes ago that I, you know, dislike the fact that these games always seem to be all about the military and there's nothing else. But I will tell you that building your own ship is very cool. <laughs> That's <laughs> something that I really enjoy. So what, what are your thoughts about that whole ship blueprint and design? Uh, there's a lot of complexity in there as far as what you can and cannot do and how you have to balance the, uh, um, 
you know, this sort of energy production with the output and all that fun stuff. So it, it actually adds a lot of overhead. Uh, for me, I think it's worth it. But what are your thoughts about it? No, I, I agree with you. It adds a ton of, ton of uh, overhead to the game. Uh, there's, there's some ways to mitigate it, but I think it's one of the best aspects of the game. So I'm willing to put up with the, <laughs> put up with the time it increases the game. But, uh, no, I, I love, you know, that's one of the aspects where you're, as you kind of said, but there's, there's not too many things to do. You're gaining resources. You're using actions to move or, you know, build stuff. But one of the interesting decisions you can make every turn is, okay, I'm upgrading my ships now. What, what do I upgrade them with? And how can I counter what my, you know, my opponents next to me are doing? Uh, or what can I do to, you know, do something they might not think I'm doing? Uh, you know, I, I, that's, that's, that's just so much fun. And uh, I think that's one of the coolest aspects of the game. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I always wished that they could have added into that somehow. And this was just, you know, a, a little thought that popped into my head after the first couple times I played it. I almost wish there were like little screens that you could put up over those blueprints. And, you know, your, your opponents could see the kind of technologies that you were taking, but they wouldn't know exactly what you were doing with them until you first come in contact with that race <laughs> and you get in your first battle and then you lift your screens for those two yeah. ships and then you have it out and people are like, holy mackerel, how does that little ship have that much firepower? Or, you know, <laughs> oh, my God, that thing's fast or, you know, whatever. And, and I, you know, or look at the shields on that thing, you know. Um, and I, I, I always kind of thought like that would be cool because one of the things thematically that, um, you know, I, I wished for was a little bit more of that sort of uh, hidden information a little bit. Um, I find that that's often lacking in a lot of these kind of 4X games. You know, you you know everything. You see everything. Right. And in a real, <laughs> real, <laughs> in a real imaginary <laughs> space empire, you wouldn't always know what the other guy or the other lady is doing you know you you would have no idea until you actually came in contact with them and then then you you know gain a lot of knowledge um you know from that experience and i, I always thought that that could add something uh to the game if you could kind of keep that sort of thing hidden and this is really the only game that i can think of that would really allow you to do that because everyone does have the the ability to kind of customize their ships and make their own ships so I think Eclipse actually has the opportunity for that, whereas games like TI3 and, um, you know, uh, uh, Hegemonic and uh, Galactic Emperor and, and other kind of space games that I've played um, don't have that opportunity because the ship is the ship. I mean, whatever it says it is, it's kind of the same thing for everybody. Right. And that's that kind of Eurofied sort of idea, whereas this actually kind of uh, takes that and, and it's one of the more fleshed out kind of things about the game. So that's always something that uh, I've always kind of been intrigued by and wondered if, if that would be something that could be added down the road. Um, is there anything that you feel this game needs? Are you looking for something else in an expansion? I mean, you know I want, uh, I want politics and laws, but <laughs> is there anything that you're looking for that you would like to see in an upcoming expansion, something that you feel would improve the experience of Eclipse? Uh, you know, I think the only thing that I would kind of want added is just more additional races. Uh, I, I don't really like expansions that try to change the game like too much uh i like when they just kind of mm -hmm. enhance the game and you know maybe there's some you know cool new technology things they can do or you know some new races that would you know kind of keep the keep it keep it fresh for everyone but you know i i don't think the the game itself it has any at least in my opinion has anything broken that needs to be uh you know tweaked or any way right <clears throat> 
And I wasn't, in, I wasn't meaning to imply that, um, you know, I wasn't circling back and saying, what else don't you like about this game, Jason? Now, you've already answered that question. <laughs> um, it's just kind of like, you know, sometimes I, I, I'm always curious when I talk to people, especially in a game of this scope, Right. And a game that already has a history of expansions, kind of wondering what are the elements that maybe you know people might be looking for. But um, you're you're pretty satisfied with the system as is, and with the idea of more races. So um, I, you know I, I think that is always something that is a possibility as long as they can play test it and balance it. God bless them right. because that that's got to be really hard. Um, before we end our kind of discussion of Eclipse, is there any advice that you can give to players as far as have you discovered any strategies, sort of overarching kind of ideas, things that you think people should keep in mind when approaching the game of Eclipse? Yeah, no, I, I think the, the biggest thing for new players is, uh, you know, they kind of they might rush out too early. This game is very uh, mean if you you kind of overextend yourself too much. Uh, so if, like what I mean by like, you know, you try to you know mess with too many people or you try to go for the mid, go to the middle too early. Um, you know, it just gives you so many. You can't protect everything. Uh, they don't give you enough basically chips to do so. Uh, so. You know, if you if you try to move too quickly, you'll end up you know basically hating yourself for it, and then in the long run, <laughs> um, that's kind of the one thing I noticed. The one thing I had to learn early on too is, you know, in, in Twilight Imperium, I don't feel like you have to. I don't I don't like games where you have to turtle, but I feel like if you don't turtle a little bit in this game, like it's not it's not combative enough where you uh, at least early where you need to go try to mess with your neighbors so much early. You really just need to set yourself up so that you have a chance at the end, and that what that means is you know it, there's different strategies for doing that, but uh, you know you don't you don't need to rush to the middle space by turn four. You you're just going to end up you know getting destroyed because of it. So that would be my my one piece of advice. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, you also outlined a strategy earlier with the monoliths and the orbital stations for a more peaceful uh, kind of victory. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that idea about, you know, rushing to the middle because that's something that, you know, I did as well. Um, I did that especially when I felt like I was being hemmed in by bad exploration. I tried to kind of move my way in towards the middle as quickly as I could and got myself hammered. So I, I completely uh, agree and understand because uh, not only are you getting closer to your neighbors, but if I'm remembering correctly, the strength of, of some of those ancient aliens, they kind of get beefed up. And so you might actually uh, be creating more problems for yourself by trying to go closer to the core uh, than if you stay out in the outer rim for a while where it's a little more quiet, a little more peaceful. Um, so, you know, those are two uh, good strategic uh, sort of tips. Um, what would you say to uh, players, do you think there's any value to using the sort of human sides of, of the boards that came in the original game? Or would you always recommend trying to go for that differentiation? Um, I, you know, it's fun to play the humans once in a while. It's, it's just another, it's just another, they're more obviously towards the middle. Like every, most of the alien races have like one really epic thing they can do. And then one horrible disadvantage, right? They're kind of in the middle. Um, you know, it's fun to play them. I, 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 unless you're a total, uh, new, uh, new, new, new into gaming, I think that, um, you could play whatever, you know, I, I, we just, when we play, we usually just randomize them and here you can pick the human side or the, you know, the alien side. Uh, but you know, I, I don't have a preference. I, I play the human side every once in a while just to keep, you know, keep things fresh. And then, uh, 
obviously the alien side probably more so, but uh, I f- think they're both you know equally fine to play with. Well, you know, one of the other things that uh, I wanted to kind of bring up, you know, is we're talking about the play experience and, you know, the different races and your sort of general strategy advice is, uh, you know, how to handle combat in this game. Um, you know, the, the combat in this game, definitely there's a luck factor, um, you know, but of course your technologies will help mitigate those things. Um, you know, how do you feel about the combat system in here? Do you think it is uh, too Eurified? Do you think it's too lucky? Um, what are your feelings about how that works in this game? Uh, no, so I, I think that's one of, the, one of the one of the you know the things that I have to say that kind of puts it in the middle for me is it has that almost felt like mechanisms to manipulate dice rolls, but at the same time it adds that whole uh, you know thematic or meritrash type thing where if you roll a one you miss no matter what you do if you roll a six you hit no matter what you do there's nothing you can do about it there's you know there's no mechanism to save you uh that's the lucky part but then it does have a way to like okay well you know if i get these computers like it'll increase my ability to hit you or if i you know basically uh build some shields like you're gonna have a tougher time hitting me but you could still roll tons of sixes so no i I think it's 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 they found a combat system that kind of hits the middle perfectly where that it it, you know it kind of kind of caters to both people people that like dice rolling but then it kind of gives you a little bit of way to uh you know you know change the you know basically help yourself and not poor dice rolls won't always affect you i guess so uh, that's one of my favorite parts of the uh, at least of the dice of the dice rolling and combat system well that's interesting because i've talked to other people i think it was joel eddie and i were talking about it the other day and and he was talking about how much he hates the auto miss (laughs) and the auto hit um not so much in eclipse i you know because i I really think there's value to it. I kind of disagreed with him a little bit on that. I'm more on your side of the fence, I think, Uh, especially in a game like Eclipse. You know, there's always this sort of uh, film in your mind, you know, that's sort of running when you're playing a game like this. You know, this sort of amalgamation maybe of Star Wars or Star Trek or, um, you know... uh, uh, you know any of those kind of movies that we watched uh, you know when we were younger and there's always that kind of desire to see that just totally improbable victory you know um you know getting the torpedoes you know to go in the death star exhaust vent tube and blow up the death star or you know um also the the just totally you know outnumbered and yet somehow they miss you you know um so i i kind of like that like you i enjoy that i like the idea that the one is always a miss and the six is always a hit because it it kind of adds that sort of imaginary part of the game whereby unexpected things can happen and it stinks when unexpected things don't go your way i understand that (laughs) but it also can be really really amazing and you know there's been times when it hasn't gone my way and you know uh, someone has come after me with a you know a fleet of you know these tiny little ships going up and i'm like laughing at them like ha 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 you know and then you know they nail me and i'm like god how did that happen you know like where, where did that come from these guys just rolled a bunch of sixes and it's like geez um so i really enjoy that part uh, even though i think that there's some people who don't they don't like that uh, sort of auto-miss, auto-hit. But I think it works well here, uh, too. I think that's something that uh, I agree with you about. Um, while we're talking about that, that sort of um, thematic feel, that cinematic kind of feel, you know, Twilight Imperium, we started off kind of comparing Twilight Imperium to Eclipse. And, 
I think that's because Eclipse's sort of stated purpose was related to Twilight Imperium. It was kind of like, okay, this is going to be a TI3 you can actually play. And there's no doubt that you get that sort of cinematic feel when you play Twilight Imperium. And it's not just because of the molded plastic. It's also because of the game length. It's also because of all of the elements of the game and the player interaction, um, the backstabbing, the negotiating, the politics, the intrigue, the fighting. Do you feel that you get that sort of cinematic experience with Eclipse? Or do you feel that you're sacrificing uh, that uh, for the sake of a game that's playable? So kind of like I said in the early when I, we started, I like I played Twilight Imperium before playing this, and I haven't played Twilight Imperium since playing this. Uh, this game's kind of, at least in my opinion, for me, has replaced playing Twilight Imperium. Um, just because I, I get that same epic feeling, I feel like I'm playing this, you know, a Star Wars movie or whatever. Um, but at the same time, I can play this game, and then we can play something else after, and not like just be stuck with the one game for the whole day where you know it can kind of drag on to I, mean, I i've just never i've just never had the urge to go back to twilight imperium 3 after playing this because i did get the same feeling uh that's the long answer towards your question but yeah all right okay well um certainly fair enough um let's uh, kind of maybe try and wrap this up by talking about we've we spent a lot of time on this ti3 eclipse thing um, there have been other sort of space games that have been out. Um, how do you feel this stacks up to them? Uh, have you played any of the other space game offerings? You know, uh, whether it goes back to the old cross-cut uh, Adam West design of uh, a Galactic Emperor, or whether it's uh, you know Oliver Kiley's Hegemonic. Um, how do you feel? Or, or GMT's GMT has their big 4x space exploration game. I don't know if you've played any of those others, but if so, how would you you know how would you say they stack up? So yeah, I play. I played Emperor. Emperor, Emperor what is it called? Uh, Galactic Emperor. Sorry. Um, yes. And that was supposed to be the first game that kind of said, "Where I'm, I'm Twilight Imperium Light." Uh, that game, I, I, it had some innovative ideas, but it felt like it ended before it really got started. I, I, I just never felt like I was actually, you know, building a space empire kind of kind of mechanism. That kind of the kind of theme never came through. Uh, kind of. That's the kind of game that kind of scared me, I guess, about Eclipse. It was like, well, Eclipse is the next one that says it's doing the same thing. Uh, but after we played it, um, there was no doubt that, for me at least, that it, it kind of replaced that. It took that. It had that same feeling as Twilight Imperium, but half the time. Uh, I've played, I haven't played Hegemonic yet, um, just because I have the fear. It seems like it's more abstracted than uh, these other 4X games. Uh, so I haven't played that one. I, Space Empires, uh, I haven't played yet either. Uh, something I'd like to play eventually. I have played Exodus. I don't know if you've heard of that one or played it. Um, that one's based on same kind of same kind of thing, which is you know Twilight Imperium and half the time, and uh, it's more geared towards combat uh, again, even more so than Eclipse. Um, but it has that whole political thing on where you're voting on the laws and stuff like that. They brought that back in in a more streamlined way. So uh, I do that one's fun too. Uh, it, it's different enough where you kind of you kind of can play them both and not feel like you're they one replaces the other. But those are the basically the two, I guess, the two 4X games that I've been playing mostly lately. 
Well, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk with me tonight about uh, Eclipse and about the Eclipse expansions. Um, you know, you've brought a lot of uh, ideas to the table here as far as what you like about it and uh, why you think it's such an intriguing design and some strategies and ideas for new players. So I appreciate you sharing your thoughts about Eclipse. Cool. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. So uh, I think next we're going to have a chance to do a little game review together, yes? Yeah, I'm excited. All right, we'll do that on the other side of this little break right here. And now it's time for a new game review. Join us for a quick look here on The Long View. So the game that Jason and I uh, wanted to talk about tonight was Marvel Dice Masters. This is a brand new offering. I believe this is uh, Eric Lang as the designer. I'm looking it up even as we speak. I'm fairly certain of that. And this game is uh, just all the rage and all of the hotness right now. And there's many different reasons for that. Uh, number one is the fact that it's almost impossible to get. Uh, but number two is that, you know, right now, you know, I think everyone would understand and agree that the sort of Marvel Universe right now is really, really hot. I mean, this is hot IP. This is, you know, you can't beat this intellectual property at this point. And, you know, we've got movies being churned out about these different characters. Um, you know, comic books have, about these characters have been almost like revived by the movies and the film industry. And people are really into this theme. So uh, Eric Lang and Mike Elliott, I'm glad I looked it up because he's also the designer. Um, these gentlemen came up with this game of Marvel Dice Masters. And this is for two players. Uh, published in 2014 and its playing time is listed at about 15 minutes and I would say that's probably pretty close to accurate and it's all about using dice and uh, different cards that are going to represent the different superheroes and, and other characters in the Marvel Universe and you're going to kind of draft these cards at the start of the game and then there's going to be an, a small array of cards that are available for sort of in-game purchase to both players. And then you're going to be attempting to roll these dice in order to uh, be able to gain the dice that are associated with the characters on these cards. And as this game progresses, you're going to get more and more dice into your kind of available pool, and you're going to be trying to smack each other around quite a bit. So this is uh, from the same designer uh, you know, of, of Quarriers. That's kind of its lineage going back. Um, which had a lot of the same sort of ideas and mechanisms. Uh, but there's a few tweaks here in Marvel Dice Masters. So uh, I'm glad that we're going to have a chance to talk about this. So what's been your experience with Marvel Dice Masters? Uh, you know, I, 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 I never was a big fan of Quarriers. Uh, I wasn't hugely excited when I first heard about this game just because of the collectible aspect. But uh, then I had a chance to play it, and it, it kind of you know, felt more like Magic the Gathering to me than to than to Quarriers. At least, at least there was a fine balance there, and I feel like I had more choices. So I ended up really actually enjoying the game. So uh, I agree with you. Um, you know, once again, uh, I know I'm sounding a little bit like a broken record, but you know, <laughs> hey, uh, great minds think alike. Um, I think it's pretty clear. Uh, I've been on the record before that I am in no way a fan of Quarriers. Uh, did not enjoy that game really much at all. And so was very kind of leery about this because 
I kind of thought, oh, well, geez, if it's the same thing as Quarriers, but with Marvel kind of pasted on top of it, eh, you know, no, no thanks, I'll pass. But then I heard about a couple of things that's, that got me thinking about it. And one of them, quite frankly, uh, you know, Jason, was economics. And, you know, the base set, despite what you see on, you know, eBay and, and Amazon right now, I think the base set's supposed to go for like 15 bucks. Yep. And the booster packs are like two bucks. And so it's this kind of whole collectible sort of thing. Um, but it also borrows a little bit from the LCG sort of side in that, you know, not everybody's going to get the same thing when they open up their booster pack. But all of the booster packs, like, they, they, they are out there. Um, and they're not as rare or difficult to find as those magic kind of rare cards or ultra rare cards were. So, uh, you know, for example, you know, I had a friend of mine who was really excited. He picked up a booster pack and got a Black Widow. Um, and, you know, another guy was at the store. This is at the Gamer's Edge I was talking about. He's like, oh, I haven't seen anybody else get this Black Widow card. It's amazing. Well, you know, Lloyd rips open his pack and there's Black Widow, the same exact card. So they're not as rare or difficult uh, to accumulate, but there is that kind of excitement of, you know, what am I going to find in here? And, you know, you open up your pack and there's a new card and a new die. So that really kind of started to get me intrigued because I thought, okay, my kids, especially my son, he'd, he'd probably really dig this. So I was really grateful to have the chance to actually have a you know play it uh, with my friend Lloyd who had managed to score himself a copy of it and so before I tell about my sort of experience with playing it I'd love to hear uh, what your experience was as a fellow Quarriers non-lover uh, what you thought of the game and what you think makes it better than Quarriers uh, the the two there's just two aspects the number one is the deck building or not I guess deck building but your your choices of the guys that you're going to start with and how many dice you're going to allocate obviously to each each character uh that that aspect obviously is more like a ccg game and that you have a choice of maybe building your combos before you get to get to the game and uh but it's not so much that you're not building a 60 card deck you're building like you know eight cards and you're allocating a few dice so it, it doesn't take too long and even if you do a horrible job, you're you didn't spend too much time. Uh, basically, you know, you can try. I guess what I'm trying to say is you can try new things without feeling like you're wasting a ton of time trying to do so. Uh, that's kind of the first part. The second part is probably the combat. Uh, the Quarriers, the combat is you know you get to your turn, you you just like you just attack everyone, right? If you can if your guy survives. Um, in this one, you actually like you know there's that whole at attack and defend type thing and. Uh, I mean, you, you just you, the combat's just way more more involved than Quarriers, and uh, you know it leads to more strategic thinking as well. So, I felt like those two things really, you know, kind of gave Quarriers a facelift and made it more fun, at least. Well, it's interesting because you know you're identifying the two areas of the game that also I felt were improved. Um, I like the combat where if you if you block with a die. Uh, the die still is available, um, you know, and, and if you, you know, that, that you can then bring that die back. And so it's not just a matter, as you said, of I'm going to put out as many dice as I can and I'm going to wait and see how many survive and I'm going to score some points. Um, I, I always thought that that was very artificial. And the word I used for it before uh, in the review of Couriers was is very procedural. You know, it's just this kind right. of, you know, go around the table and there's not really, 
I don't know. To me, it was just it was dumb. I didn't like it. Um, this made a lot more sense to me. You know, you you have heroes that you know are in that ready area, and and they're um, you know not your available dice pool. What what do they call that? The the area where there's there, there's the area uh, at the top um, of your play area where your dice go, and they can either be attackers or blockers. Yes. Yes. I don't remember what it's called either. Actually, I haven't played yeah, with the map yeah, forever. Yeah, I think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. My my friend had a mat, and it was really really cool. Actually, it was on Board Game Geek, and he printed it out and took it to Staples and had it laminated. It looked really nice. Um, so, but yeah, so you, you you have your dice, and and you can use your dice to directly you know attack your opponent, or uh, you know you can use your dice as blockers. But uh, you know dice that are used as blockers are you know not if they're not destroyed if they're not you know KO'd they call it thank you I was trying to think of the word if they're not knocked out then they're still kind of up there they're still in the fight and on your next turn you know you can use them so I really like that aspect of it I thought that was cool and I also really enjoyed as you did the pre-draft I thought that was incredibly nifty um my major issue with the game however um I really kind of left with very mixed feelings after playing it a few times. I think I played it three times, so believe me, I'm not an expert. This is just my gut reaction after playing it a few times. I still had the same problem with this game that I had with Couriers, which is, okay, uh, the Hulk is one of the characters, of course. And I think to get the Hulk die, you need five energy. And the way these dice work is uh, the, the dice have kind of icons on them that show the characters, a symbol for the character. Like for the Hulk, of course, it's a big fist, right? And if you roll those faces of the dice, there's going to be some sort of a cool thematic sort of an effect that that die is going to have. But then you can also roll these sort of sides of the dice that are energy in much the same way in Quarriers that you could roll Quiddity. Um, and so, you know, I believe like a Hulk die is like five energy. And it's like, you know, the whole first... A uh, few turns of the game, I'm just trying to get myself in a position to get my Hulk die, and I get a, I get my Hulk die, and I'm like, oh, this is gonna be awesome, and then I go and I roll him, and it's like he's energy. I'm like, okay, and then he, you know, eventually he cycles through. I'm like, here's the Hulk die, it's gonna be awesome, and I roll it, and it's like, oh look, I got energy. It's like crap. So I got enough energy so that I could go and get another Hulk die. And I'm like, no, I got two Hulk dice. I'm going to tear it up. And then every time they would come up, I'd roll energy. And it just kind of gave me that same feeling that I had with Quarriers, where I don't know about what your experience uh, was, Jason, but I had plenty of games of Quarriers where I had all these amazing dice and all I would ever roll would be Quiddity. And I'm like, okay, great. I understand liquidity is valuable. It's going to help me buy more dice. But meanwhile, I'm getting smacked around by my opponent, and it's almost too late. And so I kind of felt that that problem, if you consider that a problem, and some people don't, that problem is still completely there in Marvel Dice Masters. And so, you know, out of the three games that I played, one of them was really close and tense and back and forth and really enjoyable. Um... And two of them were kind of quick games, quick death for me, because I just kept rolling energy. And, you know, there are cards that you can buy that will allow you to re-roll, and there's some other effects that will allow you to re-roll a die. And there are plenty of times when I had a re-roll, and I'd re-roll my Hulk die, and I'd get the same dang thing again. So, I don't know. That That's kind of my big 
red flag about this game and the design is that's something I really didn't like in Quarriers, and it's still here in Marvel Dice Masters. Um, do you, have you had that experience, or is that just me as a gamer really just disliking that mechanism? You know, I I feel like even CCGs kind of have that problem, though. When you, when you build a 60-card deck, even if you build, like, the perfect deck, you know, I still uh-huh. feel like you can have that situation where you have a bad draw and the game ends quickly. So I, I guess kind of going in, I, I mean... Not comparing it to quarters, but like I obviously compared it to Magic or something. But I, I guess I guess I kind of expected that to be there. Uh, that's right. The whole fifteen to twenty minute game. Like sometimes you just have those situations where it just doesn't work out. Uh, then you have those those games that are really epic where it comes down to like one final dice roll and you get that one extra damage you needed to kill a person when the, when you had your one health yourself. So you kind of have that balance of these really close games and then there's some that are obviously not so close, but. Uh, that that's kind of my my experience with that. I think my biggest problem with the game is just the collectible aspect. I'm not a huge fan of the any of the games that you have to draw open packs and stuff. And I, I mean, I understand why they did it. It's obviously going to be a better financial situation for them. But I think if the game had been released as like, here's a big box of cards and here's a bunch of dice, here's it's pay, pay us forty to fifty bucks and you get everything. I, I think the game would have done just as well. Maybe not as well financially, but. I think it would still be a huge hit as it is now, and I think I would have actually enjoyed it more because, like, I don't have... I mean, I don't know if you have all the cards or whatever, but I don't have, like, there's, like, super rares and stuff I don't have, and, you know, I... Right. I I think it would be more fun if I could, you know, basically swap some of those cards in and try them, but I don't have any desire to go out there and, you know, try to get every card. So uh, that's that's probably my biggest turnoff with the game. I do think it's fun, Uh, but uh, my my wife actually, she's not much of a gamer, but she does enjoy that one, so... Uh, we are having fun with that one, but I, again, I don't think I'm going to be trying to get every single card. Okay. Uh, two other questions that I have for you. Um, one of them is, how do you feel about the game thematically? Now, I was not a comic book kind of a geek when I was growing up. I, I really didn't read comic books. And when I remember I was uh, I was at BGGCon, uh, riding in a car to a fantastic barbecue restaurant in Texas at BGGCon with Tom Vassell, and he was just going on and on about how much Marvel Dice Masters was awesome. And I, I remember asking him, I said, you know, but Tom, I said, something that kind of bothers me is like, why are these guys fighting each other? Like, what? I don't, I don't quite understand the whole... Like going like to me, if it was like one side were all the kind of cool Marvel villains and the other was, you know, all the good guys, like that would make sense to me. But, you know, I'm actually, you know, playing and it's like, all right, I, I've got, uh, you know, the Hulk and I've got, uh, you know, I think I had Hawkman and I had uh, Spider-Man and then my my uh, friend Lloyd had uh, Thor and Black Widow and somebody and it's like why are they fighting like just thematically I'm trying to understand why they would be going after each other like that and that that was a problem for me and 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 you know Tom was like nah nah you know sometimes they fought each other in you know in the comics and they get into disagreements and and there were these whole plots about that but see I didn't remember any of that <laughs> because I I wasn't part of right. that so for me as a person outside as I think there are plenty of people whose experience with Marvel is pretty much what mine is, which is the movies. That doesn't, that's a disconnect for me. That doesn't work for me. How about for you? I guess I, I don't, I mean, to me, the game doesn't feel very thematic anyways. Like it feels about as thematic as Quarriors did to me. <laughs> so 
Um, oh man! I mean, <laughs> okay. honestly, it's like I mean, I don't know if a dice game could really ever feel very thematic. But I, I mean, I don't. I, I guess I don't enjoy the game because of the theme. I, it's cool that the characters are on the cards and the nice artwork and stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I, the, you're right. I, I don't know why they're fighting either. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, it doesn't make any sense why sometimes they fight and sometimes they roll energy either. But I mean, the game just—it's a dice game. So <laughs> to me, it doesn't really matter. But okay. Um, the the other thing that uh, I, I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you talked about the you feel this game is, is kind of strongly connected to magic. And that's sort of um, in two aspects. Number one, the collectible aspect. And number two, the aspect of, you know, you can sometimes just have bad draws, you know, and you can have a, a really well designed deck in magic, but still just lose really horribly if the cards just don't come out right. And that really rings true with me because I've played many, you know, games of Magic, uh, not not a ton. I was never a big Magic player. But I've played many games, you know, with Magic where it's like, oh, look, you have a creature that flies. Now, I have some cards in here that are going to, you know, counter that or that fly themselves that I can defend with. But right now, yeah, I got nothing. So, oh, look, it hits me. And then the next round, it's like, oh, there's another one. That one hits me right. too, and that hits me, and that, oh, now I'm dead. Game over. <laughs> it's like that was just it was a terrible experience. I'm like, why would I want to play this game again? And I remember being just like completely blown away the first time I played Magic with with a, a good friend of mine, and I was like mad about it, you know. And he's like, dude, we don't have to play. He was such a nice guy. He's like, we don't have to play, you know, if you're not enjoying yourself. I'm like, no, nah, you know, it's it's just I got to get used to this. It's got to be something I got to wrap my mind around. Um, you know, I'm I'm just not used to this this notion that. I'm supposed to be having fun by just getting beaten up and then the game's over. And I, you know, I think I just haven't ever gotten past that. I, I don't, I don't really enjoy that. And so I, you know, it might not be fair to lay this at the feet of the designers of Quarriers and Marvel Dice Masters. This could just be me more as a gamer, um, just not appreciating having luck play such a large part that there are times when I just lose because I lose. And, you know, we talked about that in Eclipse and that, you know, there, there needs to be sometimes these Feldian ways to kind of manipulate the dice, uh, manipulate luck, even more so than dice, just manipulate luck and mitigate it a little bit. And I don't really see that too much in this game, but I haven't played it a lot. Are you aware of cards or characters uh, other than the the two that I'm thinking of that will allow you to re-roll or change a die face. I think there's a couple characters that allow you to change a die face, yeah? Yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head exactly which ones. Uh, and I, 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 Kind of comparing what we talked about earlier, though, like I don't feel, like this game's obviously like 15, 20 minutes, though, so I'm okay with, you know, like having bad dice rolls and having bad luck. But uh, like an Eclipse is a little different because you're investing so much time, so... That's right. that's that's right. my only I guess my thing I have to say on that aspect of it. But uh, yeah, there's a couple of characters that can change dice. I don't remember off the top of my head, but yeah, yeah. No, neither do I. But uh, it, it is important to note. You know, just I just want to be fair. You know, I'm sitting here bashing it <laughs> for this, but there are some things out there that are baked into the game, designed into the game that are supposed to help you with that. So I, I wanted to be clear on that. And you raise an excellent point too, which is that. You know, in a game that's only lasting 15 or 20 minutes, how bent out of shape should you get, uh, you know, over it? And, you know, that's another really excellent point in that 
I, you know, the, the, the one time that I was playing and I lost uh, those two times, uh, you know, the first time that I lost, uh, you know, my friend was like, well, you want to play again? And I'm like, sure. And he's like, you want to draft again? I'm like, no, let's just, let's just play with the same characters. And I had a completely different experience. Like, I had a completely different game. Right. Because of the way the dice rolled and, and the way his dice rolled, you know, because what can go bad for me can go bad for my opponent as well. You know, it's not just like the universe is picking on me. And so, you know, like you said, in a game that takes 15, 20 minutes, you know, it, it certainly helps lessen the sting of that. But it does make me worry a little bit that there's not a whole lot of skill involved. You know, if, if, if I can take the same set of cards and the same sort of mindset and strategy and have two completely different results in the space of, you know, 30 minutes playing it twice, it makes me wonder whether there's really any kind of skill involved in the game. Um, what are your feelings about that? Um, <laughs> that's a great question. I, I do think there's some choices to be made that are important. Uh, I think a lot of the skill is just the, the co- finding the combos, right? Like, that's the whole CCG thing where you can exploit the combos that are in a given set, like the whole what the Magic Pro Tour players do and stuff like that. Um, I, I do think this, with the with the dice rolling, though, I mean, obviously there's less skill involved than uh, something like Magic, but uh, I, I think that I, I, what I find interesting is, is what I just said, is trying to find some of those combos and trying them out. I mean, it doesn't always work out because the dice aren't, aren't in your favor, but um it does kind of give you that uh i also like they said the combat too so there's some interesting things to be some decisions to be made there when you kind of you know you get some of your some of your different characters out and they combo on each other but uh you're right other than that i mean you're just randomly drawing some dice out of a bag rolling them and hoping that uh, for the most part things work out the way you want them to right right well, you know, thanks for taking the time to uh, talk with me about this game. This has uh, gone on a little bit longer than a usual review, but that's because I keep picking at it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, part of the reason for that is is not just me picking on the game. Um, you know, I've met Eric Lang. He's a really nice guy. I mean, he's a great guy, a super nice to talk to. And, you know, as I said in the Couriers episode, all those people can't be wrong. And so I think one of the reasons that I keep picking at these games is because I'm trying to kind of figure out why they don't work for me and yet why they work for so many other people, um, you know, who, who really enjoy the games and enjoy the experience. So I want to thank you for uh, going along there with me and uh, uh, letting me kind of pound at you with some questions, uh, trying to kind of pin you down a little bit, trying to figure out, you know, where this, where this area is. Uh, you know, for me, as much as for you and anybody else who, who's out there listening. So uh, Marvel Dice Masters, I certainly think for the price point, Um, it is certainly worth a shot. Um, You know, once it's actually released again, and and I'm hoping that WizKids, you know, has it released in, you know, a a large numbers, you know, large enough that it's not going to be the sort of price gouging that we're seeing right now. Um, I think once it's kind of released at its regular MSRP, I certainly think it's worth a, a, a look. And I certainly think it's something that, you know, you can get quite a few plays out of for a very reasonable investment uh, of, you know, money and time. Um, So, you know, thanks for taking the time to look at that with me. Yeah, sure.
So the last game that I wanted to talk about today is a title from Victory Point Games, and this is called Cuba, The Splendid Little War. This is a game that came out in 2013. Uh, the designer is Javier Garcia uh, de Gabiola, if I'm saying that right, I hope so. Uh, art by Tim Allen, uh, Brian Armour, and Eric Nyquist. Um, this is a game for two players. And uh, the reason that I was really interested in this game is because this is a title that is about the Cuban War of Independence against Spain. And this is a time period that is taking place before... Uh, the GMT title of Cuba Libre by Volko Runke. And I love Cuba Libre. I found that game very fascinating, and that game has uh, inspired me to kind of take a look at some of the historical events uh, that the game depicts. And when I heard about Cuba, A Splendid Little War from Victory Point, and saw that this was kind of the preceding time period, almost like the backstory to Cuba Libre, I was like, huh, you know, this, this is kind of awesome. I would love to check this game out and, uh, you know, see what I can learn and, and what I can uh, kind of gather from playing this game. And so I asked Victory Point if they would send me a copy, and so they did furnish me with a review copy. Uh, so, you know, I want to be upfront about that. But uh, my kind of impetus was this idea that I kind of had in the back of my mind of, well, you know, wouldn't it be kind of cool if I could maybe eventually play like a back-to-back -back games? You know, first I would play Cuba, Splendid Little War, um, and sort of uh, get to go through the Cuban independence as they, um, you know, finally uh, get to throw off the yoke of Spain, um, you know, as a colony uh, with some uh, assistance from the United States at that time, and then kind of get to fast forward a little bit uh, to the point where, you know, now the, the Cuban people are kind of thinking, you know, well, I don't know if the United States uh, influence is much better than the uh, Spanish influence and want to throw that yoke off uh, under, uh, you know, Fidel Castro's regime uh, and, and his movement. Uh, you know, and his rise to power, and that's depicted, of course, in Cuba Libre. So I kind of thought this would be a really interesting sort of collection of Cuban history uh, through board gaming. So this was something that I, that I was really kind of fascinated with. So that's a little bit of a, a background, you know, kind of to the impetus behind what it was that I wanted to do. So when the game arrived, I quickly set it up. Um, you know, very briefly, I'll talk about the components. Um, the components in this game are uh, excellent. Uh, it has one of the uh, newer style uh, Victory Point games, sort of jigsaw uh, boards, uh, nice rigid boards that lay very flat. Uh, I've never had any warping issues with them. They fit together nicely. And uh, I must say that the art direction I found very pleasing in this game. Uh, it does have uh, quite a few bits of tracks and, and uh, different kinds of pieces of information on the board. But the tracks are kind of blended in with some of the, the background colors a little bit. And they're you know, off to the sides. And the depiction of the island of Cuba is actually very nicely done, uh, very pleasing to look at, and very clear. Uh, for example, the main island of Cuba is broken up into different sort of regions or provinces, and uh, each of these regions or provinces, as I'll discuss later, is worth sort of resource points. And, you know, those are white numbers in a red circle, you know, very clear, very easy to see. Uh, the cities are very clearly marked. Uh, the tracks are off to, you know, the borders of the board and are very functional, very useful, as I've come to expect in Victory Point games. But, you know, a little bit more nicely integrated into the overall look of the game. So uh, I really enjoyed that. 
Uh, the counters are the uh, uh, now typical Victory Point laser cut counters. They're nice and thick and sturdy and uh, uh, chunky. There's not a ton of them, uh, and nor are a ton of them needed. So it's got a nice minimal kind of component uh, set that's very easy to manage. Uh, we're not talking about hundreds of counters that need to be cut here. And the game is uh, primarily card-driven in a lot of ways. And so there's a, a large stack of cards uh, that come in two decks. So there's a deck that you use right at the beginning, which uh, it contains cards that are going to have uh, influence or uh, contain events that might help the Spanish player or the Cuban player during the course of the game. And then once the United States enters the war, there's a separate subdeck of cards very clearly identified with a sort of a blue banner at the top, so they're easy to differentiate, and that will then get shuffled into the main deck and uh, form a new uh, deck of cards that you'll be using f uh, throughout the rest of the game. So uh, the components uh, are uh, great. Uh, top-notch. I uh, think the card stock is very nice. Uh, I'm going to be curious to see what Victory Point's new kind of uh, playper is. Uh, they're probably going to have a, a little bit more of that sort of classic card feel, a little bit more of a snap to them, from my understanding. These are the sort of current Victory Point cards. Um, they, they are very nice. They have a little bit of a papery feel to them, but they shuffle beautifully. Um, they're very flexible and very readable, which is really nice. And so uh, I enjoy them quite a bit. Um, in addition, there's a, a player aid chart, which is very useful and handy. Uh, I do wish there were two in the game. There's only one. Um, and, and that's something that I, I wish there would have been uh, two in since it's a two-player game. However, uh, you know, I, I made a copy of it on my, my little inkjet printer and uh, I didn't have a problem with it, so now I have two. Um, so uh, not anything like a deal breaker or anything, but uh, something that I think would have been nice was to have two of those. Uh, and it's also because the player aid chart is, is quite nice. It's got pretty much everything that you need to remember and everything that you need uh, to play the game right there in front of you. Very handy. So... Um, that's pretty much it about the components, so let's move on to the gameplay. Now, the way Cuba, uh, the Splendid Little War, is played is uh, you have a map of Cuba, and one person is going to represent the Spanish power, and one person is going to represent the sort of local Cuban uh, nationals. And the, the sides are very, very asymmetrical, which is something that I like, and I'll return to that a little bit later um, once I kind of describe how the game is played. And this is basically a card-driven game. You are going to have a hand of cards that you're going to have every round of the game. And there's seven rounds to the game. So the game plays very quickly. And there's a lot of interesting decisions in a nice short period of, you know, of time, very manageable time frame. Um, the cards are going to depict either various events or various resources, things that you can use um, as you know, one of the two sort of sides in this game with a sort of third side, you know, the United States side sort of lurking in the background there. Um, as the Cuban player, you are basically trying to survive, uh, number one, which is uh, not very easy in the initial part of the game, and try to move yourself, uh, if possible, to other parts of the island of Cuba to establish yourself and uh, you know, recruit new troops and get more people to join the cause. Uh, as the Spanish player, you're, you're trying to bottleneck uh, the rebels into the area where you start, which is down by Santiago in the uh, sort of uh, uh, southern part of the island, and not let them spread. You're trying to bring in uh, more reinforcements and more troops. You're trying to build forts, which are going to make movement difficult. Uh, they're called trocas um, that are going to make movement very difficult for the Cuban player. And uh, all the while, you're trying to manage your uh, public support because 
you know, Spain at this point in its colonial history, people were sort of wearying of the conflicts in Spain's colonies. And so uh, one of the crucial things for the Spanish player to manage is their public support, because every time there's losses by the Spanish uh, of troops, perhaps, every time um, you are recruiting new troops and bringing more people in, more soldiers in, people don't always like that. Uh, They're kind of uh, war weary. And so, you know, that's going to reduce your public support. And anytime that the Cuban nationals are able to do things uh, such as uh, burning the fields, which is one of the actions that the Cubans can do to to, uh, kind of burn the very resources that the Spanish are there for in the first place is also going to erode uh, Spanish public support. So as a Spanish player, you're trying to contain and overwhelm. And as the Cuban player, you're trying to survive and slip through defenses and be a general nuisance, all the while trying to speed the United States' uh, entry into the war. And this is, of course, going to uh, basically put U.S. troops and U.S. Um, you know, power in the hands of the Cuban player. Uh, and really, for the first time, giving the Cuban player a bit of a hammer uh, to use against the Spanish, who vastly outnumber uh, the Cubans in terms of firepower and, and available resources. So uh, the game does just a phenomenal job of uh, giving you this sort of experience, this asymmetrical experience that really works powerfully to tell this story. So uh, really interesting. So on your turn, you're going to have a hand of cards. And you're going to have a number of resource points. And this is kind of the uh, impulse nature of this game, where players are going to alternate turns back and forth, uh, spending resources in order to take an action. And pretty much everything that you do is going to cost you a resource. And so you're both going to be kind of going back and forth, doing things on the board until both of you pass consecutively. And once that happens, the round is over. And then you're going to enter into uh, a administrative phase where you're going to be trying to see if anybody has won. And uh, just real briefly, the general victory conditions here. Uh, if you're the Spanish, if you can basically completely wipe out any uh, all Cuban units on the board, you're going to win. Um, you are going to lose, however, if the Cuban player is able to gain control of both of the cities on the board. Very difficult for them to do on their own, but certainly a possibility. So if the Cuban player can occupy both of the cities, uh, Havana and Santiago, then they're going to win the game, and the Spanish player is going to lose. If the Cuban player can manipulate uh, Spanish uh, home support, the public support, down to zero, that's going to be an instant win for the Cuban player, an instant loss for the Spanish player. Um, so, you know, once again, you've got differing goals. Um, the Spanish are going to try to hold on to those cities and keep the rebels out um, and keep the United States out of the war. And the Cuban player is going to be trying to win by occupying the two cities or bringing the United States into the war and eroding Spanish public support to the point where occupying only one of the two cities will signal a victory as well. So that's going to be kind of a, a brief overview of how you win. So um, on your turn, you're going to be um, expending resources to take actions. And those actions can include playing cards. Some of the cards that you play will require you to spend a resource. And those uh, often are cards that are very powerful. They're going to have some sort of onboard uh, effect. You know, a new general is going to arrive or, uh, you know, a major event is going to happen. And then they're discarded out of the game. Other cards are going to do things like manipulate or move the U.S. war entry marker on its track or uh, have an effect on Spanish public support. 
or perhaps uh, you know allow uh, for greater recruitment um, if you're the Cuban player, um, you know, etc. So there's all sorts of different sort of cards that you can play, and most of those uh, are going to be uh, discarded out of the game once they're used. But the whole rest of the deck is uh, are, are cards that you can just play at any time on your turn, and they're not going to be uh, discarded out of the game. They're just going to go to a discard pile. And this discard pile at the end of every round is going to be shuffled back into the main deck, into the draw pile. And this is the same thing that's going to happen when the United States finally enters into the war, which will usually eventually happen. Uh, and then those blue cards are going to be shuffled into the draw pile as well. Now, an interesting note is that the uh, many times you will be faced when you're playing this game with a hand of cards that do absolutely nothing for you. In other words, this is not like Twilight Struggle or a Cuba Libre, you know, the, these, these games where you can play a card for operation points or for an event. Um, you all, the, the cards are just what they are. And so sometimes you as a player will be faced with a handful of cards that you can really do nothing with. They're all for your opponent. And so it's nice your opponent doesn't have them, but they do nothing for you. And so, uh, you know, this can initially seem a little frustrating and, uh, you know, like, oh, geez, you know, I got nothing. But uh, there's a really nifty rule in the game that allows you to discard cards from your hand in order to gain extra resources. So this is, uh, I thought, a really brilliant idea because if you do happen to be unlucky enough to draw a handful of cards that are really useless to you, you can discard them for more resources, which is, in effect is going to lengthen your turn, allow you to do more things on the board, allow you to move more, recruit more, um, you know, have all sorts of different opportunities. So I found that to be a nice balance to the fact that these are not necessarily multi-use or multi-dimensional cards. They're cards that are very clearly, for the most part, slanted to one side or the other. Um, so it makes every card useful in some way, which I thought was nice. So on your turn, you're going to spend a resource to do certain activities. And the player aid chart is fantastic because it tells you all of the different sort of actions and activities that you can make. Many of these actions and activities require a general to be present. And this is really kind of crucial because uh, generals are in short supply. Uh, the Spanish player starts off with one general and you can put the general out into the field where uh, he will have some sort of uh, in-game benefit and effect for you, uh, or you can keep him in Havana City in a special area, which basically will allow him to sort of um, command the troops remotely. But by doing that, you're going to have to spend extra resources in order to actually take your action. So for the Spanish player, you have a really interesting decision there. Do I field my general, knowing that I'm going to be limiting myself in certain ways, or do I keep him at sort of you know strategic command there in Havana City and have him uh, sort of uh, running the war remotely, knowing that it's going to hamper my ability to do a lot of different actions. So that I found was a really interesting choice in the game. So some of the things that you're going to do is, you know, you're going to be able to play a card on your turn. I've already talked about that. You're going to be able to, um, you know, recruit new units. So for the Cuban player, you must have a general present, and then you can attempt to recruit new units. 
And the Cuban player has a small pool of units, but they do sort of resurrect themselves when they are destroyed. They're eligible to then come back onto the board because we're simulating, you know, the population of the island being incited, you know, people to take up arms and, and to start to move uh, in the fight for independence. So uh, the Cuban player uh, theoretically has unlimited numbers of units um, until they reach that sort of counter limit. And at that point, they're sort of done until they lose a unit for some reason and then they can sort of uh, recruit them again. So uh, the Spanish player works a little bit different. There's actually a holding box on the main board that contains all of the units that the Spanish player will ever be able to bring to uh, the map. And every time you bring the reinforcements on as the Spanish player, you're going to lose public support because, you know, new people are being called up and to go and, and try to control this, uh, this colony. So um, that's a really interesting choice. Uh, one of the other things that you can do is you can repatriate units, since we're talking about units here. And this is something that the Spanish player can do. They can dissolve units on the board and return them. So they're, they're kind of like releasing the soldiers uh, from their conscription. They're allowed to go home. And this is going to actually help uh, the uh, Spanish sort of morale track here, okay, that we've been talking about so far. And that's going to, to bump that back up. So if the Spanish player is uh, losing lots of public support due to low morale from uh, constantly conscripting new troops, they can actually increase that morale, that public support, by, um, you know, releasing troops. That's something they can do. Um, Spanish troops also have the opportunity to uh, protect the field. So this does not require a general, uh, but you put a, a, a troop counter down and then you assign it to protecting the fields. Because, of course, you know, the Spanish were there primarily interested in the monetary value of the plantations on Cuba. So you can set soldiers to protect the fields uh, because if you don't, the Cuban player can sneak in there and they can burn the fields. That's one of the unique Cuban actions. And so this is something that they can do to disrupt the Spanish player. Burning the fields is going to take away resources from the Spanish player. But it's also potentially going to take resources away from the Cuban player, which I find a really interesting decision point here. Because the way resources work from turn to turn is at the end of every round, you're going to assess the board. And you're going to look at those red numbers uh, uh, that I mentioned earlier that tell you how many resource points uh, that can be gained. And if you have complete control of a region, you're going to gain all of them. But if you share control, meaning that there are units of both factions, both sides on the map, then you're going to divide those. And so by burning the fields, the Spanish player gets no resources, but neither does the Cuban player. And I found that a really interesting decision point. However, burning the fields erodes that, you know, Spanish public support again. And this is really crucial for the Cuban player. So often that's a, a really wise choice, even though short term it's going to be a loss and a handicap uh, because you might be hurting yourself with the resources you're going to be gathering. So that's another interesting decision point. So Spanish troops are going to be trying to protect the field. Cuban players are going to be trying to burn the fields for the most part. Uh, movement in this game uh, requires you to have a general with you. Um, and attacking in this game requires you to have a general. And these are, you know, of course, the main components of what you would think of in a traditional war game. And uh, it works pretty much as you would expect. You activate a general, you move your units, um, and then, you know, you're going to kind of take a look at, you know, where they are now in the new province, in the new area, and, and what effect that's going to have, especially on resources. Then, of course, you have attacking. Now, attacking is very interesting in this game. It's, it's your standard kind of 
you know, dice rolling affair. There's combat modifiers and, and things of that nature, but nothing too onerous. It's, it's very easy to calculate. Um, and you're basically, you know, going to be comparing strength and then you're going to be determining how many dice you're going to be rolling and, you know, what your success ro uh, rolls are, which is always five or a six. So it's nice and easy to remember. However, uh, one of the things I found really interesting about this game is that if you are the Spanish player, you cannot just attack a Cuban unit. And this is good because the Cuban units are about half the strength of the Spanish units. So what happens is the Spanish player has to actually find the Cuban insurgents first, which I absolutely love. I love that little rule, that little twist, because it really accurately, at least in my mind, simulates what it's like trying to find a, basically a guerrilla army uh, operating in their own country with a sympathetic population. It is not going to be easy to always even find them. So the Spanish player can declare that they want to attack a unit that's in the province with them. But before they can actually attack, they actually have to find them. And oftentimes they don't, and then they can't attack. And so I thought that was a really nifty mechanic that was added to this game that really added to the historical flavor of it. So that's really interesting. So you have that search phase and you have that combat phase. However, the flip side to this is that as the Cuban player, any time that you move or any time that you attack, you are actually revealing yourself. You're exposing yourself. Um, this, uh, you know, reminds me of uh, uh, Volko Runke's games, um, you know, when in the coin series, uh, such as Labyrinth and Andean Abyss and whatnot, where, you know, once you uh, use your gorillas in an attack, you have to flip them and they're activated and they're not kind of seen. You know, they're eligible to be counterattacked. So this game kind of uses that same sort of idea where if as the Cuban player, I go and I, you know, launch an attack or I move, now I've been seen and now I'm sort of more open uh, to Spanish counterattacks and reprisals. So I found that to be really interesting as well. So uh, basically what you're going to have is you're going to have two players going back and forth, Cuban player trying to survive and push down the Spanish public support, and speed the entry of the United States into the conflict. Because once the United States enters the conflict, now not only does the Cuban player have the ability to use the U.S. troops, which are on par with the Spanish troops. They're, they're quite good and quite powerful. They also have the ability to now use uh, you know, their fleets, and they also have uh, you know, the ability to use the American cards, the blue cards that will pop up, will now be beneficial to the Cuban player. Um, so, you know, the Cuban player is going to spend a lot of time trying to bring the U.S. into the war. The Spanish player is going to be trying to stop that from happening. And that's going to be done through one of the actions that you can take uh, during your turn, uh, which is going to be lobbying. And so the Spanish player is going to be lobbying to keep the U.S. out of the war. And the uh, Cuban player, of course, is going to be lobbying to get the United States into the war. So that adds another nice little tug of war as a sort of almost like a sub game that's going on here. So finally, the last thing that I want to talk about here in this review is something that I absolutely love about this uh, game and the system that was created, which is what's called coordinated action. So what it allows you to do is kind of cheat a little bit. It allows you to break the rules. Because normally, remember I said that one player takes a turn, they have their impulse, and then the other player takes their turn, they have their impulse, you spend a resource, you perform an action. Well, coordinated action gives you the opportunity to do more than one thing on your turn. 
And what it's going to do is you're still going to have to pay the resources to take the actions that you're now going to combine. But you're also going to have to pay a penalty of a resource in order to do that. So it's very expensive in game terms to do it. But what it does is it allows for those surprise turns when all of a sudden out of nowhere, you know, you get a, a double attack from two different corners that you never saw coming. And it's all because of this coordinated action rule. So I really think that's a fine, fine feature of this game as well. So, um, you know, to sum up here... I find that Cuba, The Splendid Little War, is a game that is easy to teach, easy to learn, easy to play, plays in a very reasonable time, and yet does a fantastic job of sort of telling you about the history. And it shows, you know, that Victory Point and that the designer really care about the history here because one of the great little features of the game is they give you these cards. And there's seven cards. And each card does nothing except tell you the background of what happened historically during that year of this conflict. And I love that for two reasons. Number one, it gives you a little bit of an idea of a direction that you might want to take as the player. Because as you read on the card what actually happened, you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe I'll do that too. Now now I have an idea. Or you might think, you know what? I'm going to go the opposite direction. I'm going to try to rewrite history. And I absolutely love that that was included in the game because not only is it helpful to new players, not only does it teach the history, which is one of my primary goals in playing any kind of war game, but it also uh, is, is giving clues and, and hints for new players and shows just that little extra touch, um, that little extra care uh, to make the game a little more than a, a game normally might be. Um, a little added effort, and I really appreciate that. So... I find this game to be very playable. I find it to be interesting. I find it to be fun, of course. I love the asymmetrical nature of the two sides. And I think it's also perfectly set up for new players uh, entering into war games because, you know, to me, the uh, Cuban side is a little more nuanced, a little more difficult to play. There's more things you have to maneuver and more things that you have to try to accomplish. It's much more delicate. Whereas, you know, if I'm playing with someone who's never traditionally played a war game, I'm going to give them the Spanish because that's very straightforward. Manage your public support, get troops on the island, hunt down and destroy the Cuban, you know, rebels. I mean, very, very simple, very straightforward, easy to play. And I think that's just another strength. So this would be a game that I would characterize almost as a entry-level war game, light complexity, but a great gameplay experience. So I have to give a rather enthusiastic thumbs up for Cuba, The Splendid Little War by Victory Point Games. I also would really recommend uh, trying the experience that I mentioned in the beginning of the show, which is play this game and live this period of history. And then... If you have the time, you got a dedicated day you can spend to the history of Cuba, set up Cuba Libre right after and see, you know, what happened after the sort of corruption of of the government after the original independence movement uh, sets in and the United States is no longer seen as a helper but a hindrance and watch uh, that that story unfold of the Cuban Revolution uh, in that game of Cuba Libre. And you get just this wonderful Um, sort of panoramic view of Cuban history through these two magnificent games. So um, Victory Point Games, Cuba, The Splendid Little War, definitely give it a shot. So that's about all the time we have for this episode of The Long View. 
I want to, of course, thank uh, my guest, Jason Obermeyer, for coming on and sharing his thoughts about the great game of Eclipse, as well as Marvel Dice Masters. I also really appreciate him giving me a heads up about that early co-op alien. So look forward to maybe getting a chance to try that in the future. So thanks to him for writing in and uh, reaching out and saying, hey, let's do an episode about Eclipse. Hopefully I'll have the chance to talk to him again soon. I also, of course, want to thank my sponsor, GameSurplus.com. They are simply your best choice for online board gaming purchases. Their customer service is fantastic, uh, continues to be. Their packaging is second to none. I, I have never received a game from GameSurplus.com and had that box or package be damaged in any way. Their prices can't be beat. Uh, their customer service, as I've mentioned, is fantastic. Uh, they have a wonderful selection, and their turnaround time for shipping is just absolutely fantastic. So if you're looking for a copy of Eclipse, go check out GameSurplus.com. I also, of course, want to thank my local game store as well, and if you live in the northeastern Pennsylvania region, uh, go check out the Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, conveniently located off of Route Interstate 80. I think it's safe to say at this point they are the largest board game store in the area. They have a huge selection, great prices, and a friendly staff. That's the Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. So for Jason Obermeyer and myself, I want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening, and have a great night.